Today's reading is Acts 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The word of the Lord. This is the last Sunday of, of this sermon series that we've been doing for the Elevate campaign, where we've been looking at, you know, spending five weeks looking at elevating, you know, lifting up our, our practices of discipleship. And so we, we've looked at elevating worship and elevating prayer and elevating generosity. And last week, it was justice um, that Pastor Matt preached on. And if you weren't here last week and you didn't get a chance to hear that sermon, I commend it to you. It was truly wonderful, um, one of the best that, that I've ever heard preached. And Matt talked about when it, when it comes to God's justice, God's work to set the world right, God doesn't act alone, but he invites us to join him in that work. And that like Mary, because the, the passage came from the Magnificat, Luke chapter 1, where the angel appears to Mary and says, you know, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, that we like Mary have this chance to say yes to God. And so this entire campaign is about looking at the different ways that we can say yes to God instead of no, that, that our church can do this, and that us as individual Christians who are a part of this body can say yes to God instead of no. And, and saying yes in ways that stretch us, and yes in ways that make us uncomfortable, but ultimately grow us in our capacity as kingdom people, that's what the best yeses do. They make us uncomfortable, but they increase our capacity to be kingdom people. And so, you know, we say yes to God, maybe even when we don't want to, because we know that's the faithful thing to do. And so every time you say yes to God, your heart grows. And every time you say no, it shrinks. And so Elevate is about preparing us to be a big-hearted congregation so that God can do more through us. Because this is really about that. You know, this elevator, these bathrooms, this hospitality kitchenette, the center of belonging that's going to take shape in the basement through our partnership with Ace in the city. It's, it's really all about that. This is all about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, elevating 
God's message and God's ministry here. And so I hope that in all our communication around this campaign, that point has been abundantly clear. And today, as we talk about elevating mission, we get to the ultimate, maybe the ultimate story of elevation in Scripture. And this story of elevation, it's something that we can't ignore because it's right in our faces each and every Sunday, every time we walk in this sanctuary. It gets rubbed in, in our faces. And the basic principle we see is this, that, that, that there can be no mission without elevation. And our passage this morning is the ascension. And as I said, we can't avoid this passage in our church because right there, boom, look at that window. Each and every Sunday, what do we got staring us in the face? Jesus is ascending into heaven. But to be quite honest, it's sort of a part of, of the furniture, maybe. I come into the sanctuary and do I even notice that? You know, no, I, I'm pretty good at, at ignoring it. And, you know, if we're going to talk about the most important events in, in the story of Jesus, in the, in the life of Jesus, you know, we're going to bring up Christmas. And we're going to bring up Good Friday and Easter, you know, the big Christian holidays that focus our attention on, 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 on these gigantic theological themes of the incarnation, the atonement, and, and the resurrection. But the story of Jesus doesn't finish there. In, in fact, it can't finish there because without elevation, without ascension, there is no mission. The story stops there. And the ascension of Jesus, you know, isn't just some uh, weird way to kind of get him off the screen. It's like, well, he, ra- he raised again. What do we do with him now, you know? But it's essential. It's actually essential, vital to God's ongoing work in the world. And when scripture tells us that Jesus ascended into heaven, this isn't some primitive way of saying that Jesus went up into space. And so, you know, he's floating out there around Jupiter now or something like that. Now, the Russian cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin, first human being in, in, in space, uh, is, is reported to have said when he reached orbit, I don't see God up here. And uh, actually, uh, I think uh, Gagarin did not say this. He was a faithful Orthodox, a Russian Orthodox Christian. And so uh, I think uh, actually this is apocryphal. Khrushchev said this, and then it was placed later in Gagarin's mouth. But that's beside the point. But needless to say that, that for Christians to say that Jesus ascended into heaven isn't to say that he beat Gagarin up there by about 2,000 years. Though by looking at that window, you might get that impression. And this is a tough event to picture, uh, to depict. Uh, and on depictions of this event, uh, uh, Karl Barth, the great 20th century Swiss theologian, he had this to say. He said, there is no sense in trying to visualize the ascension as a literal event like going up in a balloon. The achievements of Christian art in this field are amongst its worst perpetrations. So tell us how you really feel about that one, Carl. And, 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 you know, we don't want to get confused because when it says that Jesus ascended into heaven, it's not to say that heaven relates to earth the way the attic relates to the first, you know, story of, of a building. Because ascension is not simply a, a spatial term. It's a relational one. When we say that the, the Queen of England ascended to the throne, do we mean that she walked up some steps and then sat in a chair? Of course not. What we mean is that she has a new role and a new authority and a new relationship to her people. And so the same is true when we say that Jesus ascended, that he now has a new role, a new authority. And Jesus doesn't relate to the world now like he's upstairs 
and we're downstairs. He relates to us like the author does to his story, like C.S. Lewis does to Narnia or Tolkien does to, to Middle Earth. The only way that Narnians could know anything about Lewis would have been if he wrote himself into the story. And so in Jesus, we know that God has written himself personally into the story of human history. And in his ascension, Jesus has gone back to that authorial place where he was before. And we can see that the connection between author and authority. And this is important because the ascension is the way that everything that Jesus accomplished here on earth becomes available to everyone. The incarnation, atonement, and resurrection without the ascension, it would be like dynamite without a detonator. The ascension is what causes what Jesus accomplished to explode throughout the cosmos. Because while Jesus was here on earth, he was limited to one time and one place. But now that he has ascended, his presence, his power, his work are available everywhere to everyone through the work of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus didn't ascend to leave the world. He ascended to be present in it and to it in a magnificent new way. And so the ascension, it doesn't mark the end of Jesus's story. No, it is in fact the beginning of a new chapter. Look at what Luke says right at the beginning of Acts in the first verse. He says, in the first book, so this is Luke talking about the gospel of Luke, the, the, the part one of, of his story of Jesus. He says, in the first book, my first, the gospel I wrote, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So notice what Luke says, that the first volume was about what Jesus began to do and teach. So this is the second volume about spreading the, the gospel through the work of the church. And so this is about continuing Jesus' doing and his teaching ministry. So what is the mission of the church? Our mission is to continue Jesus' ministry here on earth until he comes again. Right? The church doesn't have a mission. We are Jesus' continuing mission. In the words of one great 20th century theologian of mission, he said, the church exists by mission as a fire exists by burning. So friends, the ascension of Jesus means not that the church has a mission, but that we are a mission. We, all of us right here in this room who trust in Jesus, we are a part of continuing what Jesus began to do in teaching in Luke what he continued to do and teach in Acts and is still doing and teaching through our ministry here. And when you think about it like that, like we are a part of Jesus's continuing ministry that started in Luke, continued in Acts. We're, we're still doing it. This is the same story. This is the same Jesus doing the same stuff. When you think about it like that and he chose us to be a part of it, it's scary because we know ourselves. You know, we're not worthy of this task, what was Jesus thinking to choose people like us? But when we know that, when we understand that, when we start to come to grips with the fact that we have a sacred responsibility to do whatever we can to elevate our understanding and practices of mission. And so in that spirit, we're gonna look at three things this morning in relationship to this. 
You know, first thing, what's the focus of an elevated mission? Second, what are the habits of elevated mission? And last, what are the practices or the practice of elevated mission? So the focus, the habits, and the practice of elevated mission. And, you know, I found a way to make this an alliterative triad, so I'm very proud of myself this morning. We got three W's along with that. What are we watching, right? How are we waiting? And how are we witnessing? So watch, wait, witness. So first, our mission is elevated when we have the right focus. So where is the focus of everyone in this passage? Where is their attention? Where are their eyes fixed? Their eyes are on Jesus. They are watching him. They're listening to him. This is true of Theophilus, right? The attention that Luke is is doing, he's writing this, he's saying, Theophilus, I want to fix your attention upon Jesus. What he began to do and teach, and now I'm going to tell you what he continued to do and teach. And, And the disciples here called the apostles, they're watching Jesus. They're listening to him. He's giving them instructions. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven, they can't stop watching him. In fact, they even get you know, admonished a little bit for, for, for continuing to do that. But true renewed mission in, in the church comes when we renew our focus upon Jesus, especially what Luke talks about in verse 1, when we renew our focus on what Jesus did and what he taught. We can't have one without the other. We can't have you know, Jesus, the great teacher, without Jesus the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when we turn our attention away from ourselves and we we, we watch him again, then we'll have the right focus for mission. You know, here's one of the great challenges that the church faces. I think the church faces it in every age, but we maybe feel it more acutely in our own, is, is this crisis of relevance, Right? The church is always finds ourselves doubting our relevance. Like, do we matter? Or are we just passe? And you know, recently, uh, in the last couple of weeks, even uh, a Pew, they do these great surveys of, of religion and religiosity in America. And, and the stats came in, and the stats were bad. These were not encouraging stats, you know, for, uh, for church in America. You know, this doesn't seem like it's a growth industry, you know, going forward. And so, you know, across the country, church attendance down, more and more people reporting, self-reporting that religion is not important in their life, uh, more and more people claiming, you know, no religious affiliation, that's the, that's the, the rise of the nuns, and, and people indicating a lack of trust in religious leaders and institutions. And oftentimes, we understand that they, they do that with good reason. And actually, religiosity itself is becoming increasingly tied and part of a partisan identity. And so the temptation when faced with these facts is to shift our attention, say, well, okay, we got we to figure something out. We can't focus on what Jesus did and taught. We have to, to focus on the church and what we can do to make ourselves relevant, relevant again, to make our mission relevant again, our message relevant again. And, and so the church comes up with programs and initiatives and messaging that we will think will make the world care a little bit more about what about we're doing here. That will make the world out there think that we are useful in some capacity to them. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that when we are doing it right, when we're, we're doing church right, when we have our focus on Jesus, that, that we will be useful. We will be relevant. We will make a difference. 
But renewal in the church comes not when we focus on ourselves, but when we renew our focus and our attention upon Jesus. And you know, one of my great worries with this campaign has been that it will become about how great Res is, you know, and look at what we're doing and how awesome we are, sort of a celebration of ourselves. Don't want to do that. Instead, I want us to look to Jesus because this is about who he is, what he has done for us, and what he is teaching us. And only when our focus is on that will we be able to elevate our mission to continue his ministry and his teaching right here, right now, and out into the future. You know, one of the easiest ways, one of the most simple ways to drain the gospel of its power is to shift our attention from what Jesus did to what we do, from what he taught to what we want to teach. That's the fastest way to turn this into a, you know, a coffee club, coffee clatch for a few people. Elevating mission means that we are constantly turning our wandering eyes back to Jesus that our eyes are watching him. That's the focus of elevated mission. But now let's look at, at the habit of elevated mission. Gesundheit, by the way. All right, so Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and so he gives his, his closest followers, his apostles, uh, you know, he, he is choosing, he's choosing these people to continue his ministry here on earth. And so he's giving them instructions about what they're supposed to do afterward. And so these have to be, like, Super important instructions, like the most important instructions, right? Because, because these are Jesus' last words before he ascends. And so what does he tell the apostles to do? Look what he says in verse four. It says, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. Wait. The first commandment that Jesus gives to the church is to wait. Why would Jesus do that? Why wouldn't he tell them, go get busy? Come on, you got some preaching to do. Spread the good word, uh, 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 you know, heal the sick, uh, 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 give to the poor. I think the key to understanding why Jesus told them to wait, we see in verse six, where the apostles asks, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, said, there are as many errors in this question as there are words. So the apostles, we can tell that they're still thinking in terms of an earthly kingdom. That Jesus, well, okay, is this the time you're going to expel the Romans? You're going to establish a new Jewish you know, political state for ethnic Israel. And then they get the top jobs in the government. You know, they say, is this the time that that's finally going to happen? And so the apostles had to wait. Jesus tells them to wait because they had to unlearn the ways of the old kingdom, unlearn the ways of thinking about power that were rooted in ideas that were borrowed from the Roman Empire. The mission of Jesus' church and Jesus' kingdom is going to be completely different. You know, why is the church powerful? The church has lasted a long time, a lot longer you know, in the, than the empire in which it was born. Why is the church powerful? Because she is patient. Because she has waited upon a power that comes not from this world, but that comes only from the Lord. And when the church waits for God, we are reminded that the Holy Spirit, just like everything else that comes from God, is a gift. It's not the church's possession. We don't own it. 
It's a gift given to us. All of Christian life is a gift. It's a gift. And when it comes to gifts, we wait to receive them, sometimes impatiently. Christmas morning, you're waiting for the gift. The gift is coming, but you're waiting for it. And part of that waiting is, is formative. It's deeply formative to learn, to wait, to receive something from God. And, and all of Christian life is really structured around this idea of a gift. Worship is how we say thank you for the gifts of God. And prayer is how we ask God for his gifts. And, and, and Christian generosity is how we pay God's gifts forward to, to other people. And, and our pursuit of justice is making sure that everyone stands, no mat, understands that no matter their station or lot in life, they have a share in these gifts. And mission is how God sends us out to share the good news in the world of the gift-giving God. And so in order to learn the ways of Jesus and learn the ways of his kingdom, it takes the patient work of spiritual formation where we unlearn the old ways and learn Jesus's ways. You know, we, 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 we got a lot of stuff that we need to unlearn in this day and age. Unlearn ways of communicating that stir up animosity and misunderstanding. You know, I'm looking at you, social media, and learn instead to, to listen and speak in ways that build people up. We've got to unlearn this kind of constant distraction and learn deep focus. We've got to unlearn shallow relationships and, and social networks and learn in, instead the lost arts of friendship and community. We've got to unlearn greed and consumerism and learn generosity and saying enough. We've got to unlearn reacting and learn instead to think. We've got to unlearn a desire for instant results and instead learn again the unforced rhythms of grace. We've got to unlearn tribalism and learn unity. And all of this requires patience, waiting. And you know, the New Testament, after it gets done with the stories about Jesus and, and, and the story about the church and Acts, then it's just a bunch of letters, basically. And, and these are all letters to young churches. And these letters don't contain any treatises on, hey, this is how you do evangelism. Or, or hey, this is how you develop a mission and a vision and a strategy. All of the things that we think matter so much to us in order to be relevant. Instead, these letters are about how to do spiritual formation. The authors of these letters, these inspired authors, wrote about how to live Christ-like lives according to Christ-like values. And what this requires is waiting, patience, preparation. And so if we want to elevate our mission, there are no shortcuts for that. The church is a slow cooker. We're not an instant pot, you know? And I love the instant pot, but we're a slow cooker. And when Amy, she, it's, she prepared this one dish, once she did in the slow cooker, once with the instant pot. And the instant pot is useful because sometimes you don't have time, but it tasted so much better when it came out of that crock pot. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you how much better it was. And it was good out of the instant pot. 10 times better from the slow cooker. So we're a slow cooker, not an instant pot. So the focus of elevated mission, it comes from watching Jesus. The, the, the habits of elevated mission come from waiting on the Lord. But now we've come to the last point, the practice of elevated mission. Like what is it that we're actually supposed to do when we're out in this world doing mission? What's our job description? What's our title? 
And that brings us to our last W, witness. Jesus says in verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what does it mean to be a witness? Now, maybe you hear witness and Christianity and you know, your mind jumps to where mine did. You think of Jehovah's Witnesses. So you're gonna be a witness? What do you need to do, folks? We're going out in the sanctuary. Let's go door to door. Knocking on it, you know? And um, try to convert people. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses, they're trying to convert people to their you know, unorthodox brand of the Christian faith. No birthdays, no Christmas. It's, that was always a major hang-up for me with becoming a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> um, and I was in seminary one summer. Uh, I worked on the grounds crew. Uh, for a summer job. And one of the guys we worked with was a devout, staunch Jehovah's Witness. You know, let's call him Gene. And and my good friend, Matt, my best friend in seminary, Matt, he was on the grounds crew too. And come to find out that whenever Matt and Gene were working together, one-on-one, Gene would witness to him. He would argue with him about the Bible and theology and tell him why Jehovah's Witness theology was right and Matt's theology was wrong. And then he'd try to give him the Watchtower magazine and see if he wanted to read the Watchtower magazine. And I was a little surprised by this because Gene and I worked a lot together one-on-one and he never witnessed to me at all. I was offended. What was it about me that made me this irredeemable soul that, 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 that I was beyond hope of witnessing to? To this day, I have no idea. I have no idea. But, you know, this is not the New Testament understanding of what it means to be a a witness. And this concept of witness, the idea of witness, the language of witness is drawn, of course, from the legal world. It's, it's of course, broader than that. But, But it does come first from the world of the courtroom. And so to be a witness in the legal sense is someone who can speak to what they know is true based on what they've seen or they've heard. And so a witness is called to support or or detract from a particular case. So witnesses testify. They provide evidence in a case. And so Christians as witnesses are called to be truth tellers in the world about who Jesus is, you know, what he did and what he taught. So truth tellers about what he did, that he suffered on the cross, he died for our sins, he rose again to new life, and thus he defeated death and was vindicated in all his claims, and he ascended into the heavens, and so he's Lord of all. Truth tellers about what Jesus did. And truth-tellers about what Jesus taught, to to share the good news of the kingdom of God. It's kind of the legal sense of being a witness. But but there's a broader sense of what it means to be a witness. And it's not just that we can vouch for something that happened, but that we can vouch for its significance. You know, significant events in history. There was a, a Nike campaign for LeBron James, whose tagline was, We are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. And the campaign was introduced when LeBron had been in the league for only a couple of years, but the message was clear. When fans watch him play, you know, they are witnessing one of the greatest to ever play the game. His combination of, of size, strength, skill, and savvy are the likes of which we have never seen before and we may never see again. And so a witness in this sense can speak not just to the truth of the matter, but to its significance, why this matters. So a witness says both what happened and why it matters. And I think this, this legal and kind of historical significance concept of witness capture what it means to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Because we can speak to who Jesus is and what he did and what he said and why it matters 
both theologically and personally. A witness can speak to why Jesus matters for everyone and why he matters to me. What great things he has done in my life. Now, friends, as we are on the cusp of of collecting these commitment cards, we are all witnesses. We're all witnesses here to God doing something that has been talked about in one form or another in this church for, for 40 years, but it's never been attempted. And when I say talk about, I mean a couple of times before people came up with real plans, you know, real plans of how to pull this off, but they never put themselves where we're putting ourselves today actually asking for and making commitments and saying, by God's grace and with God's help, we are going to be the ones who finally pull this off. We are sticking our necks out. But we think this matters because we want to welcome everyone to this place in Jesus' name. And so friends, in this moment, we are all witnesses. And a witness speaks to what they, they know to be true. They speak to its significance. But a true witness witnesses not just with their words, but with their actions too. Because a true witness is trustworthy. And trustworthiness is not about the words we say, but about how we live our lives. Because what's the easiest way to discredit a witness? Impunge their character. They're not credible. Look at how they live their lives. You know, she's no angel. That's, that's been said a million times. And that's why as followers of Christ, our integrity matters. Because when we fail to live up to our beliefs, when we're hypocrites, we make our witness less credible. That's why being a witness to Jesus Christ is just as much about how we live our lives as as what we say we believe. And Christians can't just think that we can, you know, just speak the truth. We've got to live it too. And lastly, this word witness, it, it has a particular flavor in the Christian faith. Because the word witness, where it comes from in in Greek, is this word martyria, which is where we get the word martyr. And the reason for this is that there were early Christians who were killed for their faith, and their suffering and death were seen by their brothers and sisters as the ultimate witness to the reality of Jesus. They were willing to remain true to him to the very end. And so a true witness stands for Jesus and stands by Jesus regardless of the cost. And, you know, of the apostles hearing this from Jesus, you will be my witnesses, you will be my martyrs. You know, tradition holds that, that most of them suffered and died for their faith. And all around the world today, there are Christians who are being called to this exact same kind of witness. Persecution, suffering, disappearing, death for their loyalty to Jesus. And, you know, we got it really easy here. But we have a challenge in our relative comfort. What, if anything, are we going to be willing to sacrifice for him to demonstrate the validity of our witness? Are we willing to say yes to Jesus? Are we willing to go all in for him in order to elevate his message, his ministry, and his name in this place right now and for generations to come? Right? This is our chance to say yes. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.